Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast is a Dear Media production. Welcome to the Gabby Reese Show. It's all an experiment. Hey, Hi, everyone, and welcome to today's show. My guest today is a very special person. They all are, but Mr. Charles Vinnick. And Charles used to be with the Cousteau Society, and now he works with a, a group called the Whale Sanctuary Project. And Charles is a very intelligent and soft-spoken man on a mission. It's This is really less about Charles and more about the whales, about the orcas and the belugas, and, you know, saying, hey, maybe it's not the best, even though you know, maybe there was certain programming going, hey, we can use putting whales in captivity for education and people's appreciation for the animal. And he says, hey, that's all true, but it really isn't good for the animal. And once you really understand how intelligent, how social these creatures are, you'd rethink it. And he was part of reinserting the whale Keiko who played Free Willy. And what he says after going through that process for more than four years is, it's so simple to take these animals out of nature and virtually impossible to reinsert them. I learned a lot. There were parts that were emotional, but ultimately it leaves me hopeful that there are real advocates out there who are doing it in an empathetic, informative and collaborative way. And I think the timing is perfect. I hope you enjoy the conversation. I also think what's funny is actually because of your message and the educational part and the reminder part of talking about whales and, uh, you know, liberating, especially, I don't want to say your focus seems like orcas, but beluga orcas, Well, it's all cetaceans, but belugas and orcas actually suffer more in concrete tanks than do dolphins because they're larger, they have social connections that are actually closer in their families. So we focus on them because they're suffering more. Mm. I have so many questions, but maybe just sort of bring me to the place of your journey, um, how you came from Connecticut, ended up at the Cousteau Society, and just 
you know, what got you really interested in the ocean and marine mammals and, and uh, how you ended up on the project that you're working on today? Well, growing up, we lived in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. Connecticut was one, but I lived in Florida. When I went in the Air Force after college and had to fill out a form for a social, for a security clearance, I had 21 residences and I was 22 years old. So we moved a lot, Mm -hmm. but a lot of the time was in places where there was water, and I've just always loved the water. I like boats. I'm a wooden boat kind of crazy fanatic. Mm -hmm. But the happenstance of working with the Cousteaus had nothing to do with any of that. I was on the faculty at USC. I was— What were you—so you went into the Air Force, and then when you came out, you—what were you teaching? Well, I— I had become an administrator of various adult education programs. So in Washington, D.C., there was a place called the Graduate School U.S. Department of Agriculture, Mm -hmm. which was neither a graduate school nor a part of the Department of Agriculture. But we had 18,000 students in about 125 conference rooms around Washington, D.C. every night. And I was the head of that program at about 23 years old. I became the head of that program. So that launched me into working with universities. USC created a conference center for adult ed. I was recruited to come out to be the head of that program. And one day, Jean-Michel Cousteau walked into my office. He was looking for a school to sponsor their summer programs. There were four programs on four islands around the world. Mm -hmm. And all the women in my office lined up against the wall And if I had said no to him, I would have been thrown out the window. So he and I became very close friends, and we sponsored their work, sponsored in the way of providing academic oversight to these summer programs. Now, when you say academic oversight, was it just sort of giving it some kind of validation? Was there studying? What exactly was needed for those programs? These were three-week programs on four island locations Mm -hmm. to give people a sense of being in an island environment with basically no infrastructure for three weeks, where you got immersed in the environment. And you would not survival in that sense because you had all the things you needed, but you were living with the water, you were diving every day, Mm -hmm. you were exploring each environment. Each of the four were different. And so we provided what were called in those days continuing education units Mm -hmm. for people who wanted or teachers who wanted credit for doing this for their professional education. Right. And so that was part of the role of the department that I was responsible for at USC. So we did that. You know, it's so funny when you talk about that. I think we could use that really a lot right now in the, you know, in this time. I feel like those kinds of programs could really change people's lives, just three weeks. They do. And people, now when we meet people who are on those programs, they say, my children are going too. We want to send our kids. Mm -hmm. And they all remember that experience because it's intensive, it's real, and it's great fun. So it was wonderful to be a part of that. As somebody who's, you know, lived enough, you know, years to be in several transitions of Mm -hmm the world and our culture, do you see people successfully navigating or using these environments to blend natural living 
living with nature, remembering animals and ecosystems and technology. Do you, do you, have you seen really good examples of that? I see good examples of it. And we see it even today with similar kinds of programs. When people get out in nature, and it's more important when kids get out in nature, mm -hmm. they adapt to it almost instantaneously. The joy they feel and they see and they share with their parents and then teach their parents mm -hmm. is palpable. But I do worry that sometimes with our smartphones and everything else where we're focused in and not everyone gets out, that we perhaps don't connect with nature in the way we need to. Yeah. So I think it's, certainly I see it, but I worry that it's not as often as it could be. And in some cultures, it's not existing at all any longer. Yeah, it's like getting that immersive experience. So all your senses are experiencing it, not just going like, oh, I've seen that, I understand that, right. but getting that visceral. Because uh, listen, I have kids and I grew up on an island and, and I grew up in the Caribbean. And, um, you know, it's just, that's how I think living with Laird, it's like, I think that's an easier way to connect because it's like no words are needed. Well, it speaks to you. Yeah. The environment speaks to you and it becomes a part of you. And when that happens, and I think it happens often for people who get to experience it, but for those that don't, they don't have that texture. They don't have that feeling about it. Mm -hmm. You know, I in preparing for you to come here today, I was just watching a bunch of your lectures and things like that. And I think what really, a couple of things really stood out to me. One was that you have a gentle delivery you know, it feels like an invitation, and I, I really am excited to talk to you about uh, the Whale Sanctuary Project or, the you know, the, the retirement home for captive whales. But I, I think part of me, if I, I thought it was important to ask you, besides obviously getting the whales that are still in captivity into better environments, mm -hmm. what do you want to say to people? What do you want them to do as far as dolphins and, and whales, what can they do? Because I think sometimes we get information and we go, wow, I'm inspired, or I, I, I agree with him. I think just right off the top, I'm like, what do you want them to do? Besides not go to paid you know, marine parks. I think what, what we want people to understand and then to do mm -hmm. is that animals in general, we're focused on cetaceans. But animals in general belong in their natural environments. There are no longer circuses having elephants perform. Yeah. There are sanctuaries for big cats. There are sanctuaries for chimpanzees and gorillas. Right. So I'm a whale guy, and there haven't been sanctuaries for whales yet. Well, let's create them. Yeah. And we can do that. And then those animals certainly deserve to be in sanctuaries. But it's really about the wild animals who deserve never to need a sanctuary. Right. And that's really the most important part of the message. So what I want people to do is subscribe to that ethic, the ethic of taking care of people in the way we want to be taken care of yeah. and taking care of animals as they should be. And then we don't need to take care of them if we leave them in their natural environment. Yeah, and I just wanted to establish that at the top, and mm -hmm. um, I'm because I think it's important just to be really clear sometimes about certain things. Yeah, like this is what we need to be doing and supporting. 
So you off and on were with the Cousteau Society in indirect and direct ways. Mm-hmm. And um, maybe just now, you know, break me into how you, I think you had an experience basically that really put you on this path of um, realizing that the orcas and belugas, uh, but initially with an orca, um, they just, there's no way they belong in these small areas. Mm-hmm. Right. So you were you in Australia? I was. Okay. Uh, once I worked with Jean-Michel and his father full-time as the manager of the Cousteau Society, if how, you will. And how progressive are they? Well, they're very progressive. I mean, come on. These guys were ahead. Well, Jacques Cousteau was really, in many ways, the first person to use the word ecology. Yeah. He, you know, and he, he didn't, if he was sitting here today with you, and you were to say, well, you're a scientist. He would say, no, I was never a scientist. He just had this incredible curiosity. He started as a kid with a camera everywhere because he loved cameras. Mm -hmm. When he started diving and he wanted to dive deeper, he needed to invent something to let him dive deeper. So he invented the scuba, the aqua lung. Then he wanted to take cameras underwater. So he put a box around a camera, he made it watertight, he took it down. He developed each tool that he needed to dive deeper and stay longer. So I was privileged to know him and to uh, revere him in the way everyone else did, but I got to have lunch with him as well and breakfast in the mornings. Mm -hmm. So that's a very special experience. I was advancing our films for Australia. I would generally go out months ahead of the team and months ahead of Calypso and try to find the money and the people and the stuff to do an expedition. Mm-hmm. I was in Australia, and I would go for a week, a month, and I would go to Sydney one day, Melbourne the next, and Perth the day after. And no one traveled the way around Australia then. And I would do that to look for what are the things we should be filming, and who are the people we ought to be working with as we bring the team to film. When you say that, you mean certain experts who know the area, the types of animals, what do you, when you say the types of people? the people who have experiences that we should share with others in film Mm. and in television. Because in those days, we were making four one-hour documentaries a year for television. I used to watch them, by the way. Good. (laughs) As did I. Yeah, so good. (laughs) They were fun. And so I was in Australia, and there was a marine park. And I said, hey, got to go. So I walked. What was the feeling for you about marine parks at that time? Was there... Was it sort of a neutrality or were you like, oh, that's a weird, that's a whole weird thing? Or I didn't know. Yeah. I was just, they were animals. There were mm-hmm. pseudo orcas. They're the Southern Hemisphere orcas that were there. And I just wanted to see them. And I thought this would be interesting. I'd, I had never been to SeaWorld. I had never been to one of these parks. So I went in. I introduced myself. I said, hey, I work with the Cousteau. I said, well, come on back. Come by behind screen. And the show had not started. We went in the pool. They showed me the signals that you give to the whales so that the whales do a trick. And if you put your feet underwater and you cross them and they blow a whistle, so I didn't do the full signal, but they blew a whistle, the whale came up underneath me and threw me up in the air. And I thought, well, that was really cool. Oh, wow, who gets thrown up in the air by a whale? And then there were two of them, and they said, well, stand on their backs, and you can water ski across the pool on their backs. So I did that. And it was fun. It was, I was laughing. I, you know, you get the water splashing, the whales are doing their thing. And I'd never done anything like that in my life. Right. So I stayed to watch the show. Mm. And I'm watching the show and I'm realizing 
this is really weird. I'm the Cousteau guy talking about the environment. Here are some whales doing tricks for the audience that I just participated in, and I felt terrible. Mm. I, I, it just, it, it was a very unsettling feeling because on the one hand, people loved it, and they describe it as educational. And yet it was clearly an uncomfortable feeling that these whales were being asked to perform for us, and I had participated. So I never forgot that. You know, it's you, you just said it was educational, and and you've you know you said this like oh it let, it makes people fall in love with these animals and care, and you're like this is true, you know. So I think what I really appreciate is you're not denying that some of those things actually occur, but <laughs> at what cost, you know? And and when you're talking about animals this large. And this powerful, and what is it? They can swim sometimes 100 miles a day or something. Mm -hmm, sure. Um, going down a couple hundred feet, hundreds 300 feet. feet. So feet. It, it's it's that interesting thing where you're not saying, hey, it's cool that people could actually get that close, but it you know at the at the expense of this animal that just has zero business being in these very confined areas. So, what did you do after that? I didn't do anything right away. Okay. I went back to work and did my thing for yeah. the for the work for the films and yeah. the like. But the issue and the fact of having participated stayed with me. And so over the years we were asked to do things with aquariums, we were asked to do things with marine parks, to lecture. Mm -hmm. And those I always felt we should not be doing as Cousteau's, as the Cousteau team. That's not something we should be doing. And years later, Jean-Michel and I became involved with the story of Keiko, the free willy whale. Yeah. Uh, because there was a whale that the world knew. Everyone knew free willy yeah. because of the film. But free willy was in Mexico City at the time that that film was made. Why did they pick that whale? Because I'd have to ask Warner Brothers, okay. and I don't know the answer, okay. but let's guess. All right. And that is that there were no rules as to what they could film and when they could do it, probably in Mexico City. Uh -huh. They could make an arrangement with this park, Reno Aventura, where it would be appropriate for them to do the filming, and they had access to the whale as much as they needed, whereas other parks, that might not have been the case. Mm -hmm. And he was alone. So they didn't. They could actually film a single whale in the way they needed to, as opposed to a group. Right. So it fit for the story. Okay, I'm curious though. So I had mentioned to you when I first met you. My mom taught dolphins. Yes. Uh, in a circus in Mexico City. Oddly yeah. enough, she also worked for the Boston Aquarium. Yeah. And did some stuff with on the fringe with Dr. Lily. Yeah. Okay. Good. Yes. All right. So. What's interesting is nobody loves these animals in this certain way than the trainers. What do you think's going through the trainers' minds? Why are the trainers, and I don't mean this, I'm not criticizing the trainers. I just say this as a curiosity where nobody spends more time with the animal, knows the animal better, appreciates in this certain specific way these animals. What, is, what do you think that dynamic is? Well, I think you said it perfectly in your first sentence, nobody loves these animals more than the trainers. And that's true. Oh, so they want them in their pocket? No, 
No, they act, no, they love them in just the way I do and just the way you do. But they are also, they have grown up in this system. And it's, it's a career. They are able to connect with an animal in ways almost nobody does. And so I think what we're experiencing is a paradigm shift. There are as many trainers who feel the way I do mm -hmm. and the way you do as there are who don't. Yeah. It's shifting. But go back to the time that I was in Australia. There was no other way to experience those animals than in a park. Right. That's no longer true today. Today, a family can go whale watching yeah. for probably less money and a greater experience than going to a marine park. But that didn't always exist. Right. So it's shifting, but there's not necessarily anywhere for the animals to go until we create it, until right. we create something different for them. And the trainers will be part of that. Okay, so tell me, because you, 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 kids flipped out. Well, they, kids they said, saw the film. Yeah. Kids saw the film, and there was a, an article in Life magazine about it. Mm -hmm. And the kids realized through that article that this whale was ill mm -hmm. and suffering. 10,000 kids wrote letters to Keiko and to Warner Brothers saying, you got to help the whale. Yeah. You said in the movie he went free, but he's still there in Mexico City. And because of the kids, Warner Brothers, the Humane Society of the U.S., and a new organization at the time called the Free Willy Keiko Foundation decided to do something about it. Yeah. But it's because of the kids. It goes back in a way what you were saying, like that bottom-up learning. Mm -hmm. Like sometimes kids see things so clear, like, hey, this isn't right. And it's, you know, us staying open and right. having kids do this. So do you have to, I can't imagine the park. So the well was not in good shape. It was underweight. It had sores on its skin. It had a papillotavirus, yes. So did you have to buy the whale from these guys? Well, that was a, a negotiation <laughs> with the park, and they actually made a decision to donate the whale to the nonprofit organization. The whale was flown by UPS to a, a facility made for it in Oregon at the Oregon Coast Aquarium, a big outdoor tank, twice the size of the tank, much deeper, and he was rehabilitated there, gained mm -hmm. 2,000 pounds in weight, gained a few inches in length. Was it just by, okay, food, more care, and also maybe a little more space that all this that allowed that to happen? Yes, and, and certainly veterinarians taking care of it, providing it medication, mm -hmm. but it was a lot of exercise. It was now natural salt water, not artificial salt water. It was colder, mm -hmm. and he got a lot of exercise, and he became a robust whale. A team of veterinarians came together and they agreed that it would be possible to try to take him back to Iceland where he had been captured more than 20 years before mm -hmm. and to see if it was possible to reintroduce him to the wild. Not release him. Anybody can release a whale. Right. But they, unless they connect with a family yeah. and can live in a family group, they won't survive. So let's go back to the 20 years. So Who's capturing Keiko? Who gets Keiko in Iceland? Is it a, who, who's doing that? Is there a need? Like, if someone say, hey, I need an orca? Like, how does that work? And, um, and then also, I, I'd love to know the dynamic, because there is a dynamic even within the whale pod of when they take the whale away. Mm -hmm. So how, how does that, that system 
Well, in the 70s, there was the beginning of marine parks, and there were whales being captured in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. and in Iceland and in Russia. And because of the appetite of these commercial enterprises, they would buy whales. So fishermen were out capturing whales. And if you look at some of the videos of those captures, they are hard to watch. And you see things that we would not anticipate until we've seen them. So always you're capturing the young. So you're capturing them and taking them away from their mothers, their sisters, and their aunts. And when they're captured in these nets and pulled away and the nets are closed up a little bit, on the recordings you hear the mothers and the sisters and the aunts keening just the way we hear humans keen when their children are taken from them. That's what we're doing when we capture whales and take them from their families. It's, it's heartbreaking and tragic. And that was happening in Iceland. It was happening in Russia, happening in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and Canada uh, at that time. And that's what happened to Keiko. He was taken from his family 20 years before I first saw him. That makes me weepy even just hearing this, you know, the stories. So how much does a whale cost? Let's say in the 70s, how much can you get for a whale? A female whale, uh-huh. because she will reproduce and therefore has more value than some of the big males, could be as much as $5 million. Oh. And today that would still be true. And today it's China and Chinese parks that are buying them mostly from Russians. So, you know, I don't want to rag on China, but I... I feel like it's getting it's gotten so much better here and and I, I don't want to get away from Keiko's story yet, but you know, it's like Blackfish put a big hole in everything, like it was, right. you know. But you you feel like, okay, we sort of get it, we're starting to get it wrapped up, and you're gonna, you know, you're having a, one of your first sanctuaries, you've located the location, and now we're it's is there any way to have some kind of enforcement or China just has to deal with China and they're just going to go through the same cycle that we just did for the last 40 years. I mean, I, how does that work that they've got these parks and I don't know, is there a way to either, you know, make it so that in Russia they can't sell because it's money. And at that point, you know, you wonder. Well, I think a number of things are happening and they're all, they're very positive in this regard. And I'm, positive kind of guy anyway. I have to think this way. But a year ago, there were actually in the end of 2018, 100 whales were captured in Russia by fishermen. Mm -hmm. And they were captured to sell to Chinese parks. The Russian environmental community went crazy. And they had petitions and they were petitioning the government and the like. And they looked to us to help Mm-hmm. And Jean-Michel Cousteau and I and the Whale Sanctuary Project were able to put together an international team. We wrote to Putin and said, we will help. If you will release these animals, we're there to help. And through a long story short, we got an answer and said, yes, come over. So we went to Russia and we met with the Ministry of Environment, Natural Resources. Then we went to what was called the whale jail, where the whales were kept. 
outside of Vladivostok and the far eastern shore of Russia. But they've already removed them from their families at that point, right? Yes. Okay. But, it, but listen, but it's still a bigger conversation, too. But there but were, they have a, they have but a new there were 100 of them. There were 11 Orca initially, 10 when we got there, one had died, and 87 Beluga. Wow. And we evaluated them, and we said they're all healthy enough to be returned to the wild. And over the next six or seven months, in negotiations with the activists, with us, and with the government, Mm -hmm. they made the decision and they released all of the whales, taking most of them back to where they'd captured them. So in that instance, they were not allowed to be sold. And the Russian government made a commitment because of that, that they would stop allowing fishermen to capture whales. So it isn't firm yet. Right. But it's it's a change. If the, if the supply stops, then there's nowhere for them to get them in China. So besides Russia, the Northwest, or you know Iceland, where where else is the supply? Well, today there's no one capturing them other than the Russians. Got it. Okay. Now the Japan is is still capturing dolphins. Yeah. But uh, and the Chinese may begin to do some of that themselves. But there are activists in China today. Today, everyone has their smartphone. Right. They're seeing what we're doing. Kids are telling them. So I don't expect that it took us 40, 50 years to make this change. Right. They might make it in five. It's amazing that the, I mean, because I just feel that sometimes, like you said it very eloquently, where it is that programming, like, well, there's nothing wrong. It's not that they're thinking they're doing anything wrong. It's like, oh, no, this is a, a good thing. And sometimes you feel like with certain cultures, with marine life, Japanese, Chinese, with whales and dolphins, it's like, oh yeah, sharks. It's like, it's crazy. It, it is. And, you know, we, different cultures eat different things. Yeah. They do different things. We don't all have to be alike, but no. we end up and we probably, you know, diversity is synonymous with sustainability. Yeah. So we need the diversity in our human cultures, as well as in our natural land, animal, plant cultures. Yeah. But we all do have to have an ethic about care, and that's evolving. And as cultures, we've seen it everywhere, as cultures get more affluent, they want to have more fun, they got to do more things, they create entertainment, and in trying to get everything, they copy us. That's what I mean. I always see like, I'm like, oh, you're not doing that same stupid thing we did already. Right. We realized it didn't work. Right. But they, you know, they do. Uh, but, you know, look, when you point a finger, there are always three pointing back at yourself. No, you're right. And yeah. so right now in the U.S., we still have marine parks. Yeah. It's Canada that passed a law, not the U.S., about this. We do not have a law in this country about that their whales shouldn't be performing in parks. We don't have that law yet. Now, we haven't imported a whale in decades, but we do not have a law against it yet. It's interesting how some other countries will adapt, you know, sooner. So, okay, so Keiko gets to Oregon. Gets to Oregon, grows, grows. becomes tough guy. Yeah. And then the question was, can he really be taken home? Yeah. And so certainly the people who were taking care of him wanted to try. And it's at that point that I became involved because I was asked with Jean-Michel Cousteau if we would help the group that was doing it. 
And so I did. And there were many people who were involved who knew far more about whales than I did, who still do know far more about whales than I ever will, and who were really responsible for all of that work. It wasn't me. Sure. But I got to go along. I got to go on the plane, a C-17, to fly to Iceland with him. We air-to-air fueled twice en route so that we could take off light, make the whole trip to Iceland, short runway taking off, very short runway on an island off the south coast of Iceland to land on. So we had to take enough fuel before leaving U.S. airspace. It was an Air Force plane. Mm -hmm so that we could have enough to get to Iceland, but be light enough to land short. So it was really cool. So we did that. Yeah. And uh, again, we had UPS involved, and they signed and would move him on trucks. We had a lot of fun. Got him in the water. The moment he got in the water, just swam and took in the whole bay pen we had built for him and was exploring it all. So you could see that he was interested in his new environment. Anytime I can use a product with the word beast in it and feel good, I'm excited. And I have been using beast brands for about a year. I've lost track of time, but I know this because I'm on the end of my second beast bottle, which is this infinitely reusable aluminum pump bottle, and it holds a six-month supply, so that's how I know where I'm at. Um, I've got the all-in-one Everyone Wash, so everyone can use it. Um, it actually just won a Men's Health Grooming Award. And the Everyone Wash, it's lightly scented. It's a head-to-toe cleanser, so it can replace your shampoo, face cleanser, and body wash. It's even perfect for sensitive skin, so if you have sensitive skin or little humans around, it's good. It's got some aloe, shea butter, ginseng, even orange. Uh, it smells amazing, green and herbal, you know, because it it has all of these things inside it, no chemically smelling, um, just natural botanicals. The other thing I love about them besides their products and how they make you feel is they're vegan, they're cruelty-free, and they're made right here in the USA. You know about this bottle, this aluminum bottle. So what does that mean? It means less plastic waste. You can save yourself some money. You don't have a bunch of junk and products in your shower. It looks great. So if you want to check them out on Twitter or Instagram, go to at Tame the Beast. That's at Tame the Beast. Or go online and order at getbeast.com. That's G-E-T-B-E-A-S-T.com. And they are offering you 20% off your next order if you just put in the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y at checkout. That's getbeast.com. Save yourself 20%. Go ahead and put in the code Gabby, G-A-B-B-Y at checkout. We're all looking for natural remedies, I think. And it's confusing because like who's doing the good stuff? And CBD has become really, really popular. And so that means there's some people not doing it right. Um, and I am really excited to share with you the Ned brand again. And I've been using it for my sleep. You know, people will use CBD products for a bunch of things. They'll use it for sleep or anti-inflammation. Some people even talk about for anxiety, maybe feelings of depression, pain relief. Maybe you get some aches and pains from training. You know, you just want to take, you know, get a little support and healing in that. And so the CBD products are great for that. And Ned does such an incredible job. They've got zero isolates or synthetic ingredients. They're into full transparency. They want to share with you, you know, any third-party lab reports, who's farming their products, their extraction process, and it's all done right there on their site in Colorado. They even have products for your cycle, 
So they've got a collection of salves, tinctures, and roll-ons to support hormone balance and easing some of your uh, menstrual cycle symptoms. They've got other body butters and lip balms. Because remember, if you're putting it on your skin, you're pretty much eating it. So you want to make sure it's the highest quality ingredients. They've got a full-spectrum hemp oil. You'll hear about that a lot. But it's only got two ingredients. It's got full-spectrum hemp extract and a non-GMO organic MCT oil. And that's it. So... You know, these guys are diligent about doing it right. They even have a Ned North uh, Star membership. So it'll get, you'll get some savings. You'll get you know, first look at some special products. They've got limited runs. So if you're interested in that, you can do that without a big commitment. And a lot of times people are concerned like, okay, what's the THC CBD situation? Really simple. Uh, the products contain a minuscule amount of THC, less than 0.3%, which is allowed by law. And this level of THC makes Ned full spectrum hemp. So it's non-psychotropic, meaning you won't be high. So if you want to check out Ned, uh, check out their CBD products for yourself. They've got a special offer for you. You can go to helloned.com, H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com. And if you put in slash Gabby or enter Gabby at checkout, G-A-B-B-Y, they will give you 15% off your first one-time order. Or if you become a member, a subscription order, they'll give you 20% off plus free shipping. So that's helloned, H-E-L-L-O-N-E-D.com slash Gabby to get your 15% off your first time one order. Or remember, that's 20% off your first subscription or plus free shipping. Thanks, Ned. I'm Kareen Eldor. Ever feel like you're playing small? Well, turn up the volume on my podcast, Share a Voice. Every Thursday, I sit down with the wave makers and game changers on everyone's radar. I'll be sharing inspo and takeaways based on my conversations with disruptors, visionaries, and compelling creatives about how they express themselves in their work. Prepare for tons of mic drop moments and subscribe so that you catch every sound bite. I'm fascinated by the power of feeling heard and taking up space. And I'm amped up about sharing these conversations with you. Well, okay. So just because people know this, but I think it's really important to remind them about dolphins. And I I don't know if if it's uh, which animals, but there's very few that have a sense of self, Mm -hmm. right? Or it would look at them, could see a reflection of themselves and know self. Humans have it, dolphins have it, whale, you know, orcas have it. I don't know, maybe monkeys have it, certain, you know. Some. But very few. So the level of intelligence of these animals, their brain size, the emotional development, the parts of their brains with emotional development. um, And and I want to get into kind of pod languages. Mm -hmm. And just because we know they're smart, but I don't always know if we realize how smart they really are. And we may not yet know. Right. We may not be smart enough yet to know how smart they are. That's right. Well said. (laughs) But the woman who actually founded the Whale Sanctuary Project that I'm privileged to be the director of did some of the first research that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Her research, Dr. Lori Marino, was research about proving that dolphins do have Mm self-recognition. So she wrote with her colleagues the first definitive study proving that dolphins recognize themselves in a mirror and that they have that self-awareness. Now, of course, orca are big dolphins. Right. They're not a whale when you actually start talking about it. They're right. a big dolphin, the biggest. They have that. But as you live with them, spend time with them, it's really the family connections. It's the emotional side. Lori's a neuroscientist. Other parts of her work are looking at the brains. Mm-hmm. When you look at, and if you will, 
explore with, with technology a brain of an orca. The parts of it that are convoluted are far more dense than are the human ones. Mm. And I, of course, they're larger, but larger, accounting for their size, their brain is still twice the size of ours and particularly convoluted in areas of emotion and communication. And so then when we observe them in the wild, and we know this about the science of them, we begin to understand them as a species, mm-hmm. as a person, as, right. you know, what is their personhood, if you will. So the females can live 70 years or a little beyond, and the males about 50 years, is that right? Males, or, males 50 to 70, 50, 60, females 70 to 80. There's a story of Granny up in the Pacific Northwest who lived to be over 100. Wow. There are at least one female whale in the Pacific Northwest in her 90s now. So, and and typically there is a family, the, the female's usually kind of the boss of that pod, typically. And is are there any males or whales that are kind of roaming alone and then meet up with pods, or how does that work? Well, the, it's a matriarchal society. So mm-hmm. we like to say the women call all the shots, not unlike our own. But, right. <laughs> so, uh, but the males live with their family pod most of their lives, usually all of their lives. Okay. They leave the pod to mate, but they don't stay with their mate. They return to their family pod. So, and the, the mothers are bringing up their sons and their daughters. They all share prey together. An orca made 100, 125, 130 pounds of fish a day. It's very inefficient for a single whale to try to catch that many fish. But as a family group, yeah. they can catch it and they all feed. I would encourage anyone who's listening to this just to pull up a video of watching how they the cooperation of circling around a large pod of fish, tightening that, coming in and hitting it with their tails, stunning the fish, and just swimming. I mean, it's so brilliant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, we've all seen them hunting, obviously, the seals. And I know it's a bummer, but it's also genius. And it's they're going to eat what they kill. It's not, you know, they're not doing it to be mean or a beaching. The beaching mm-hmm. process is pretty amazing. Now, there are some killer whales that won't eat fish and actually some that only will eat mammals, right? That's correct. Laird and I used to say, um, because they would sometimes get a killer whale in captivity and not understand why it's not eating the fish because it's not a fish-eating uh, orca. And Laird's like, can you imagine if you went to SeaWorld and the trainers were like giving the orcas like a seal? Like it would be over. That's right. Right, like oh, fish, and the you know. (laughs) So, so I think people don't realize these are these are really sophisticated and and complex animals. And then I was uh, always amazed that they could identify each pod or family by their language, by their dialect. Yeah, that's right. So, could you just explain that a little bit? Well, certainly the orcas and dolphins as well, and belugas, other whales. Sperm whales all communicate in various ways, quite differently one to the other. Mm -hmm. Within the orca, and the reason we know these things is the group of orca in the Pacific Northwest, Mm -hmm. J, K, and L pod, have been studied longer than almost any other group of orca anywhere. So not only do we know the individual J, L, and K pods, 
but within them we know their families. Every individual is known by its markings and has been given a name, as we always do. Humans give everything names, so they all have a name, but they also have letter designations and the like. So we know everything about that we can about those animals. In being able to study them that carefully, scientists have detected that the small family groupings within J, smaller groups, have individual dialects that are special to that family, in much the way we might have little tricks or talking to our kids or something else they have, but it's very specialized. And so they communicate within that group, but their language among J, K, and L pods is also well enough known that they all communicate to the larger groups as well. Mm-hmm. And the they come together, J is called a pod. So that's the J pod, the L pod, the K pod. They come together in a super pod once or twice a year and all hang out together, socializing, playing, eating. Why? Yeah. We don't know, but they do. And it happens not infrequently, not every year, not every time. But when you happen to be there and you see 50, 60 whales together, 100 whales together, that's shocking. Yeah. Here off the coast of California, we can go out and see a thousand dolphin and do what's happening when they're there. They're not always here. Is there something else or similar going on with them? We don't know. We've studied that group, so we know more about it. It's amazing. So Keiko's now in Iceland, and um, you're sort of just letting Keiko explore. Initially, explore a bay pen the size of two football fields. Then we said, okay, you have to net off the whole bay. So we netted off the whole bay, 800 meters of net across the opening of a bay. And you're in Iceland. I mean, you know, it's light for May through September. It's dark and cold September through April. So what's your season to go out with the whale? It's that summer season. And so the literature always said, well, if you want to take a whale home, you want to release it, you take it for a walk. No one had ever taken anyone a whale for a walk, but that was in the literature. So our team, not myself, I was with them. I was privileged to be with them. But the guys were the animal care, guys and gals were the animal care staff, developed a protocol for taking Keiko for a walk. We had a big Zodiac boat, Zodiac-like, and you'd call him through the net. So we had a gate, train him to come through the gate. First time he goes through the gate, I don't know, that's strange out there. He'd wait but eventually he'd come through the gate, get comfortable. Then you take him, two, three, four knots of speed, you throw him some fish, and you go for a 10-mile swim. The next day you go for a 20-mile swim. Mm -hmm. And eventually you're trying to go for 30, 40 miles a day to get him up to being used to going 100, 120 miles a day, Mm -hmm. so that he can go with a pod without holding them back keep up with them, or if they felt they needed to hang back to care for him, might change their behavior. Sure. So you're trying to get him trained for a marathon, just like you would train to go for a marathon. We're training Keiko for a marathon. And all the while trying to get him close to wild whales to see if he would be interested in them and they would be interested and accept him. Yeah. The first few times, he had no interest and they had absolutely no interest. He'd come by and they'd go off. Really? Yeah. Not even like 
cruise around, check each other out? Not the first few times. Interesting. First do, few times. Do you? Okay, so if Keiko was not an animal that was being reintroduced at least into a natural environment, I'm not saying back into nature. Mm-hmm. This was just more of trying to get Keiko into this environment. Let's say it was just a, a male that was sort of in transit from mating back to his original family pod, would do, would they have that same understanding? Or do you think, obviously, that they knew this whale is sort of, you know, different in a way that we're out of here because this has nothing to do with us? Like, what do you think that they probably had that understanding? With Keiko? Yes. I think he was a complete stranger. None of his vocalizations made any sense to them mm-hmm. if he was vocalizing. And... He wasn't familiar in any way and probably gave off his own vibes of fear or concern, just the way we might. Yeah. And that's, you know, these are, they, they would understand that. They would feel that difference. So I, I can't say whether it was them or him. We will never know. But it clearly, to observe it as a human, it wasn't happening. Right. It's just interesting. Now, is Keiko's dorsal fin, is it, was it? Is was, it was bent over. Bent over. So typically, in nature, they're not bent over. Typically not. The, occasionally, happens. there is. Yes. But typically not. And it's pretty much most of them in captivity. Are. Yeah. I often felt like that was emotional. Not only just physical, but just, like, think about Keiko alone. Mm. Just, you know, contact, language, touch, you know, all of that. Just a physical representation of... Could be. And uh, what we do know is that it's physical because gravity pulls it down and they're swimming on the surface. They Mm. spend all their time in marine parks on the surface because it's not deep enough to dive. Right. So gravity is doing that because the skin of the dorsal is like this skin between your palm, your thumb, and your forefinger. So it's cartilage, a lot of cartilage. And the weight of that for the big males pulls that down because they're spending so much time on the surface, mm-hmm. not swimming in any robust way underwater. Yeah, and the water would take the pressure off of that. That's right. So they can go down to about 300 feet, but do we know like an approximation of how long they can actually hold their breath? In, in orca, it's not, you know, sperm whales for hours. Yeah. They have incredible lungs. For orca, it's minutes. It's five, 10 you know, it's that would be a long, mm-hmm. a long time. They're more often coming up for a breath and going back. And then, what about? I've heard this, and I just I want to see if this is accurate because I think it's fascinating. Sleeping, I've I've heard that dolphins, it's sort of one part of the brain goes to sleep and one stays on just enough so they can breathe. Right. Is they're, that accurate? Yes. Yeah. They are. They are. Uh, vol- they're voluntary breathers. They have to breathe. Right. You can't anesthetize a whale. So if you're trying to do any kind of incredible medical work, you cannot anesthetize a whale because they have to be awake to breathe. So when they sleep, it is half the brain sleeps, the other part is awake, and they hop up to the surface and breathe. Wow. And often it's, they're vertical. And then they'll right. pop up and breathe. And the blowhole is positioned to enable that to happen. And is it for a longer period of time, or do they, are they sleeping in sort of shorter period of time? When are they doing? I don't. Now? I don't know that we know. I certainly don't know. Okay. But 
They sweep in, in hours. We, we did have the privilege in a Cousteau film in Papua New Guinea of uh, being around some, some orca for a little more than a full day. Mm -hmm. And the divers got in the water with them and they were filming them and the like, and then they rested and they did their breathing like this. And together? Pod three of them, three. There were Amazing. three. Uh, and then they eventually went down diving very deep, and they came back with good-sized sharks in their mouths. Yeah. And then they began to play with them the way cats will play with mice. Yeah, you, you don't want to mess with That's when our divers got out of the water because there was so much detritus in, in the water from the sharks being eaten by the, by, the, uh, by the orca. Yeah, and I've heard stories that they will even— uh, well, like eat the, I don't, I want to, I want, I don't know which organ, but something, sometimes very specific parts of the shark. Uh, sharks will also, you know, they'll attack gray whales, they'll yeah. baby gray whales, particularly on the, out here, and they will usually eat the tongue and the liver. Yeah, we're, the liver, right. We're the only really th threat to them. Well, they are the top of the food chain in the ocean. Yeah. In the way we are the top of the food chain on land. So, just as we can kind of do anything we want to another critter should we want to, yeah. so can they. But what's really interesting is there's no evidence that they do anything like war mm. or for things other than food, whereas we cannot say the same. Right. So who's to say who is the more intelligent species? Of course. We don't know. Yeah. So, okay, so Keiko gets blown off or blows off the group for a few times. And then was there an experience with it? There was sort of an interaction, right? There were many. Okay. What, what I found and what I observed is that every summer we would have the opportunity, when the weather allowed, to go out with him out for whale walks and to interact with wild whales. And first of all, it's fairly hard to find wild whales. So our donor provided us with a helicopter. Without that helicopter... We'd be running around looking, and three-foot waves, you don't see a dorsal fin. Yeah. You can be out all day long and never see a whale. With the helicopter and our boats, we're able to make that an efficient process. And he would interact. He'd get close, and then he'd come back, come back to the boat. And over time, he would spend more time with them. And by August, he would be more comfortable. And then the whales would go away and the weather would get bad, the wild whales were no longer around, mm -hmm. we'd wait till the next April or May to start again. And he would pick up exactly where he'd left off. Mm -hmm. He had no loss of experiential comfort. Right. That's what inspired me to keep going. Because if he'd lost it, and people would say, you know, come on, how long are we going to keep trying this? Because, you know, we've got people, they're on 30 days. Yeah, time and money. And they're off 30 days. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, their families or some other part of the planet. I always found it wasn't difficult managing the whale. My job was managing the people. That was the hard part. It's always the people. The, that's always the people. <laughs> so it became a question of, is can we be successful? And people had differing views. Our own team had differing views about whether this could go on. Some of them would say, I'm, I'm going back home. I can't keep doing this. And we'd get new staff. By the fourth year, we kept doing it. And he was quite comfortable with it. But one of the experiences that I had that I just have to share, because it's like the first one in Australia. I was in the helicopter. Mm -hmm. 
and we were looking for wild whales. And I had one boat, we actually had two boats, one boat where Keiko was, another spotter boat a mile or so away. About two miles from where Keiko was in the helicopter, I saw a group of 15 orca coming toward him. This is exactly what we're always looking for. Wonderful. So we tell the boat they're coming. They say, fine, we'll hang out. And we would always just have the engine off, let the whales do whatever they want. And we would try not to participate or be engaged in any way to impact the environment. The 15 whales got about a mile away from Keiko. Mm -hmm. And they were in a line. And I'm watching from the air. I see the whole thing. What a gift to you. Oh, it's unbelievable. And five whales go far to the west, and five go far to the east, and five keep coming directly toward Keiko. And they keep coming. They get close, and they thrash around with Keiko for a little while. They were not very interested. He wasn't too interested. He came back to the boat. They swam on. They got about a half mile beyond the boat and Keiko, and the five from the west and the five from the east all lined up, and the 15 went on their way. So what had we seen? We had observed... 15 whales see something or someone a couple miles ahead of them that they didn't know what it was. So they made a plan to deal with it, a plan that wouldn't put the whole group at risk and that they could control the environment by the way they did it. Mm -hmm. And we had hydrophones in the water at Keiko's boat. We never heard on the hydrophones any sound from the 15 whales when they made the plan no sounds from Keiko that they would have heard, yet they knew he was there. Mm -hmm. They made a plan. They communicated the plan among the group, and they executed the plan. Sounds like almost like a military uh, yeah, like operation. A, yeah, like a pincher movement, classic pincher movement. I wonder who the five in the middle were. They like the oldest, meanest group. In the, Didn't look you know. that way, but <laughs> they were the most curious group. Yeah, right. Who's to know? But it was that, you know, that shows you a level of communication and intellect. There's no other word for it than that you wouldn't necessarily think. And I got to be privileged to see it. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Really. Tremendous. How far can uh, whales communicate underwater uh, approximately? Well, some orca, not so long, not yeah. so far, given the, the pitch and the, uh, the frequencies of theirs. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, your humpback whales, it's hundreds of miles, songs of the humpback whales. Yeah. Similarly, sperm whales, big, big lungs, deep, deep things that interact and go miles and miles. So it depends on the species. The chirps of the dolphins yeah. are not nearly as distant uh, in, their, in their range as would be the deep sounds of the humpback and the, and the sperm whales. No, wait, is it? True. Uh, is a sperm whale do something with either the fat in their no in their front of their body to help them go down deep? I'm trying to yeah. remember. Yes. You know something about changing the consistency of it. Do you? It, it is what we understand. And again, it's very hard to study something like that yeah. because you don't want to be dissecting the animals. You can't do it when they're diving. No. So it's all but. All of what we understand it to be is that it gets to be denser. And it's the density of all of this fat tissue. They have a huge melon that allows them to go down to 3,000 feet. You know? And they too, though, they'll leave a baby on the surface, mm -hmm. young juveniles on the surface, and one female there to take care of it while the others go down and get food. Then they'll switch. 
a fascinating, fascinating species as well. I know much, much less about it. Yeah, I just remember, I've been interested in, well, obviously dolphins and whales for my, I don't know what kid isn't. Every kid is if they're given the chance. I mean, they just, it's just awe-inspiring. Yeah, yeah. So Keiko, was he a good size whale? Like what was he? He he was about uh, 10,000, let's see, he was about uh, 10,000 pounds, 10, 12,000 pounds. He was about 21 feet long. So he was he was a good robust whale yeah. then, not not a massive male. Because uh, they can almost get to I'm going to say thirty feet. They can. The very big big bulls can. Yes. Can you imagine seeing a thirty? I mean, people freak out about oh a seventeen foot tiger shark, and I'm like, do you understand how big and the girth of these animals? Yeah, the girth is huge, but they're they're gentle giants yes. in many respects. Well, they can I mean, be. They can be, and they cannot be. But there's no evidence of them attacking humans. Now, there have been some stories this year about some boats that have been pushed around in Portugal by some dolphin yeah, were there babies, juveniles. Though? They were oh, young juveniles. males. Yeah. Young males apparently having fun. Yeah. Well, that sounds about right. You know, I, I love the story of when uh, there's a threat to dolphins. Who goes on the outside of the ball of the dolphins? The juvenile males. Because yeah. they're like, let those crazy... You know, it'd be like having 18-year-old boys, 18 to 20-year-olds being like, oh, see what's out there. I right. mean, look at our military. That's what we do, that's right? That's what we do. Yeah. So um, that's really funny. Uh, right, I love that. And that's really important. There's never been a, a recording of an orca uh, attacking a human being in nature. Right. And obviously, if people saw Blackfish, they know the stories of, you know, certain scenarios. But, you know, they're, they talk about, first of all, they're in captivity, frustration, you know, mm-hmm. whether it's, okay, ice clinking and no fish available. I did the trick. Where's the fish? You know, like a lot of dynamics about it. Tremendous stress. What they, mm-hmm. what the studies show is that orcas, dolphins, and whales in captivity are under a tremendous amount of stress. Mm-hmm. And they exhibit behaviors of that stress. So you see them going in circles. They call those stereotypies where they're doing the same thing over and over. And certainly that was what Keiko was doing in Mexico City. Yeah. It's what you see whales, orca, beluga doing in tanks. They also don't have anywhere really to echolocate on because the facility is hard. It's a hard surface. There are no other little critters that they're hunting to echolocate on. So they begin to shut down. In some ways, being in a concrete tank an analogy might be you or me being in a house of mirrors, yeah. a room that's not very big with mirrors on all four sides and the floor and the ceiling. We're a visual animal, and that would drive us crazy. Yeah. Whales and dolphins are acoustic animals. So if we create echo chambers for them where they're hearing their own sounds, it would be equally for them, I would expect, yeah. like being in a house of mirrors for us. Yeah. And that drives you crazy. And there are stories of whales who do go crazy. There are stories of suicide, where a whale will swim at top speed and bang its head against the far wall. That has happened Mm. in parks. Well, dolphins will do the same. They'll hold their breath. That's right. I mean, hold their breath. So Keiko took a jaunt, though. He did. You know, (laughs) he he took a jaunt. He's like, I know this zone a little bit. I'm going to (laughs) go— Well, in his in the summer of 2002, so we arrived in 1998 with mm-hmm. Keiko by plane. By the summer of 2002, he'd spent every summer going in and out, getting more comfortable with the environment. 
the first day that we took him out to the wild whales that summer, and he had a satellite tag and a radio tag on him, and we no longer had the helicopter. Money was no longer as free-willing as it had been before. But we had a sailboat that could stay out and be quiet because you didn't want a motorboat because turning on the engine of a boat he knew was like a whistle. So the cavitation of that engine and the sound of it was like a call. So we felt using a sailboat so we would not be in, mixing up in the environment would be helpful. So we had a sailboat out there. There were a lot of wild whales feeding on a herring ball about eight miles off the shore of this little island we were living on. And he stayed there. First day, he went toward the whales, didn't come back to the boat. So we allowed the boat to drift away. And he stayed with those whales, not directly in the pods, but about 25, 30, 50 meters off for three weeks. And he would swim with them around the island. We could tell by the radio tag, the satellite tag. We'd get a signal every morning on satellite, but daily we could hear the radio tag. And he'd swim with them. He was obviously comfortable. He wasn't coming back. He could find where his home was if he wanted to in the island. He could come back to the bay if he wanted to. He didn't. So for three weeks, he hung around these guys? Hung around those whales for three weeks. Was, were you guys thinking, oh, maybe this is it? Yeah, maybe this sure. is his crew? Yeah, definitely. Or these guys were probably like, who's this guy? Who knows? <laughs> we were hoping. And then there was a big storm. And so in August, there was a big storm. I called the sailboat in because it was not safe to keep everyone out. And we didn't know where he was for that weekend. But when the storm let up, it was a big storm. Mm. We could go up on the biggest hill with their headphones on and listen for the radio tag and we could hear it. But we could only get the satellite tag once a day as to where its location was. Mm -hmm. So by Monday morning, when we got the satellite tag, he was about 50 miles offshore. So I rented a plane and a little two-engine little two plane to go look for him, and got out. And you can't take a single-engine plane because you're going out over the ocean. That's not safe, so they won't rent those, but you rent a two-engine plane. And with the radio tag, I could again hear him, but the seas were big enough that I never saw him. Mm. So we could only go so far with a plane of that size, so we came back. And he was, by radio, by satellite tag, going basically due east, headed toward Norway. I guess that's the next landmass he would hit. Yeah. So we went to the Faroe Islands. What about at that time, were you guys thinking he was able to hunt at all on his own? Well, he had certainly learned to hunt. Okay. We had taught him that live fish were food. The first times you do it, he brings a live fish back and gives it back. He thinks it's a game. But eventually he does find it to be food, whether he felt it was enough food for him because it's a lot more work yeah. than getting fed by us, probably not. Yeah. But he could do it. Would he do it? Could he sustain himself? We did not know. So you, these are risks. There are risks you're taking with a reintroduction program. Mm -hmm. But he swam. And we could know where he was every day, so we could chart it on a map. But we couldn't necessarily get there. We didn't have a boat big enough to keep up with him and them and go all that distance. It would have to turn around and come back for fuel and then mm -hmm. go out the next time. So went to the Faroe Islands. They, by that time, had heard Keiko was coming. People was in the news. They offered their help, got me a big helicopter and a big ship, but the ship broke down, so I took the helicopter. 
And again, we could hear him on the radio tag, but never saw him. Still headed to Norway. So we sent people to where that path would end up if he continued on that path and they could greet him. Mm -hmm. But when he got 100 miles off the coast of Norway, and by that time, as I say, people knew he was coming. They recognized him by the dorsal fin. Some kids and their family in a family fishing boat threw him some food, and he followed them home. And he was no longer with Wild Wells. But was he by himself when they— He was by himself when he reached them. Okay. Now— with the satellite tag along the route, we could tell that he was diving deeper than he ever had with us. He dove as much as 300 feet. Wow. He was swimming robustly. What, what's like a, if they're really moving along, what's an average knot speed that they're doing? Well, they could be doing, they can have bursts up into six and eight and even wow. 10 at times, but they're generally traveling four to six knots. Yeah, especially if they have younger ones with yeah, them or whatever. Yeah. Oh. And they're stopping to feed, they're, you know, they're socializing yeah. at times. But he was for another three and a half weeks on his own going across to Norway. So by that time, it had been seven, almost eight weeks since we had been with him when he landed in Norway. Mm-hmm. The people who were there to greet him did a measurement of his girth, and he hadn't lost any weight. Now, that's a, an indication that he had been feeding but it's only an indication because he did have fat and the like. He can live off that for a long time. So the scientists will speculate whether he was really sustaining himself or not. But he followed them all the way up a fjord. There were no herring there. There was none of that. And basically, he stayed there for the next year and a half. We had people who took care of him and fed him, but he had no enclosure. He could come and go as he wanted, but he basically stayed there with mm-hmm. him. And then in the winter of 2003, he did catch a pneumonia-like virus, and he died that, that winter. At the time, he was the oldest male in captivity. And so ever, the question, of course, is, so was this, was it cruel, what we did? Was it successful? Mm. What was this experiment of reintroducing Keiko to the wild? And it's a, it's a tough story. And it's emotional for me. Yeah. But it's better than being in Mexico in a small space with, you know, open sores. I think the space and swimming and diving deep and and being in that openness and the attempt and also opening up the learning and and the conversation, I think is important. Well, I think that's important. And I also think that we were able to provide Keiko with a, the high, a higher quality of life for those years mm-hmm. in Iceland than he had at any other time since he was a child and caught. Yeah. And so the quality of life that he had and seeing him experience and obviously enjoy that environment to the extent we can understand his joy, which we probably can't a lot, but he was robust. He was swimming. He was chasing birds. He was catching fish. He was chasing flounder. All of those things of a natural life. So in that sense, I think we gave him tremendous quality of life. But were we successful in reintroducing him to another family? No. Right. So what's the learning? I think what we come away knowing is that it's really easy to capture a whale, but it's incredibly difficult to put one back. 
So that informs everything we're doing about creating sanctuaries for these animals so that we give them assisted living in a natural seaside environment as close to their natural habitat as we can, realizing that in almost every case, and most have been born in captivity, unlike him, they don't have the skills to be back fully in nature. Right. But let's give them back as much as we can. They have earned tens of millions of dollars for the people who hold them. They've entertained hundreds of millions of people. Yeah. We owe them that. So the, on the in the whale sanctuary program, talk to me about because a lot goes into finding a location, the temperature of the water, currents. I mean, there's a what's on what's in the area, um, the amount of space you can actually, you know, isolate off for them, things mm-hmm. like that. So you you have located a location. Yes. So can you share? And I know COVID hit and all this stuff was happening, and it was sort of in the works for a couple of years. But maybe just share um, how that's going and and you know, what are some of the next steps? Well, we looked at hundreds of sites in Washington State, British Columbia, Nova Scotia, and initially even in Maine. Cold cold water sites. These are cold water animals, belugas and orcas. And the idea, if you close your eyes, you think, what's a perfect sanctuary? It's a bay, maybe a mile square that's wide at the head of the bay and narrow at the front so that you can net it off easily. Mm It's 15, 18 meters deep, mud bottom, no homes, no docks, and anyone wants you to have it. That doesn't exist. I was like, like, oh, wow, where'd you find that? So that's what you're looking for. So you look at 130, 150 sites, you visit 30 or 40 of them, and you find it's really difficult to find that mental picture that you've been carrying all this time. And also, if you drive the coastline of most places, the road doesn't happen to be on the beach. So you're doing your best, but you're missing an awful lot of the places that might work. So what you realize, and what we realized is, you have to turn to the people who know the coastline. So we then started doing town meetings in Washington State and all along the coast of Nova Scotia. The south coast of Nova Scotia, they call the south shore and the eastern shore is 7,000 kilometers. I've actually driven all 7,000, but we did seven, eight town meetings. And in every town, we said the same thing. We have an idea. It's a wonderful idea. And we described a whale sanctuary. And we said, if this is interesting to you and it fits your vision of what you think your community would like, then please get with the fishermen and come back to us and tell us where we should be. Tell us what coves, what inlets are the right ones for us to consider. And then we'll, with you, figure out whether it meets all the physical criteria. 12 to 15 meters of depth, 100 acres of space, good current, good current flow, all the things you mentioned. So we did that. And three communities in Nova Scotia came back. One of them had no sites that worked. Two of them did, and one in particular embraced the project in ways that they started putting up signs, belugas belong here, orcas come home. They put up billboard-sized drawings of whales on the streets. And they found a site in Port Hilford Mm -hmm. on the eastern shore of Nova Scotia that's a, a bay of about three kilometers square, 
There are some fishermen who fish lobster there, as there are in every part of Nova Scotia. But the fishermen even said, yes, this is worth doing. This is something we want to be part of. But how, how does that work? Like, do they have to move their location for finding lot? Like, how does it work, first of all, for the fishermen and then also feeding these animals? How does it, how do these dynamics work? Well, what we will have to do is net off an area which is exclusive for the whales. Mm-hmm. So first of all, want to find a spot where the stakeholders, the fishermen, the recreational boaters, the commercial boaters, the swimmers, the sailors, the kayakers, where we're not infringing on their use of the water space unduly, too mm-hmm. much. Right. And where they perhaps, to the extent that we're infringing at all, think the project and the mission is worth enough that they'll move. And in Port Hilford, we have that level of connectivity with all those stakeholders. So yeah, there are two fishermen who fish in the area for lobster, but they don't fish everywhere. And they're willing to say, okay. Now, no fisherman will tell you exactly where they put their lobster pots. Of course. That's real (laughs) private information. But they are willing to say, okay, if you put your nets here, we can live with that. So that's the conversation we're having with them. Now, we've begun to do all the environmental assessment of the bay. So we have hydrophones to find the sounds. We've done side scan and multi-beam sonar so we can do a picture of the whole bottom of the bay to understand how our nets can be deployed. What other critters are there? Did anyone drop an old car? You know, did, yeah. and did they sink it that we're gonna have to move? What's going on? So. As we're sitting here, the multi-beam sonar is going on in Nova Scotia today. We're meeting with all the stakeholder groups. We're meeting with every scientist who has any interest in anything. And we're asking them, what's your biggest concern? Do you think we'll impact the environment negatively? Are you concerned for the whales that will be resident? What could harm them? What harm could they do? What might happen to the environment? Making sure everybody is telling us what studies we need to do, what research is needed beyond what we've already done, and we're putting all of that data together for an environmental impact statement for the permitting that we're now involved in to permit the site. All of the land underwater is Crown land. It's owned by the Crown, owned by the country. So you have to have a use permit to use the water. So we're involved in that permitting process. All of the agencies, Department of Fisheries and Oceans, Department of Aquaculture, Lands and Forestry, Maritime uh, Transport, Department of the Environment, all of them will weigh in on the permit. So we're meeting with all of them. And we've been doing that for two years. First Nations, in Canadian law, you must engage with First Nations. So we've been meeting with the First Nations all along. Mm -hmm. They, of course, see the whales as culture of theirs. Mm. So they have also embraced the project. So on February 25th of this year, we announced the site in Halifax, the capital of Nova Scotia. Tremendous outpouring, news all over the world about it. On the 26th, the following day, we had a big celebration in Sherbrooke, the nearest community to Port Hilford. Two or 300 people showed up. These are little towns, and they all come to celebrate. They had a wedding cake, a flat cake with belugas on it Mm. for our celebration. 
On the 27th of February, the world shut down, Mm -hmm. and we have not been able to get back to the site for our U.S. team. But we have a Canadian team that's been working all along, and we're making great progress. So certainly the pandemic has slowed us a bit. Right. Yesterday, I would have said, we're going to have whales by the end of 2021 in our sanctuary. Where are these whales Today, I say, first quarter of 2022. Okay. So it has to move a little bit. Where will they come from? Yeah. They come from marine parks. And these are marine parks that have closed down, or these are more mature whales? Uh, who, how, does, how, do you get to, how does that process get decided? It will be decided with us and the marine parks that want to work with us. See, it's very interesting. People would assume that a whale sanctuary project is an advocacy group against marine parks. Not the case. Well, you don't. You, we have to be partnered with the marine parks. Yeah. Well, you don't have that. I think that's what's very important. I think about any activism is you do a very good job of presenting it in this tone. You're not combative. It's the invitation of, hey, we could probably do this better. But I would love to know, like, the marine parks, are they sort of, how do they manage this? It's different for each park. There are parks in parts of the world that are saying, look, we need to move our whales. Clearly, it's not healthy. There are other parks that aren't there yet. Sure. You know, there is a park in Canada, marine land of Niagara Falls, with 50-plus belugas and one lone orca. But we have reached out to them, and we're in communication with them. And what I would hope is that over time, they see this not as something that's the antithesis of what they're doing, but rather as something that they can work on together. They clearly have more whales than they can care for. But if we work together, they can help us demonstrate that there's something we can do going forward. Mm -hmm. We're creating a model sanctuary. The buildings, the animal care building, the veterinary building, the marine operations building, this will be 20, 22 people full-time to manage eight whales. It's a big operation. But every building can be built modular. We can design everything so it can be replicated Mm -hmm. somewhere else, and each time we do it, it will be less costly. So for us, this is probably a $15 million proposition. We're a nonprofit. We're raising money all the time. Go to our site, yeah. whalesanctuary.org. This is what we're doing. We have a number of people who have already given six and seven figure gifts to help get this started. People who are committed to doing it. $15 million sounds like an incredible amount of money, but it's less than SeaWorld would pay to build a new expanded amphitheater to do more shows. Yeah. So comparatively, it's not that much money. It can be raised. And each time we do it, it will cost less and will serve more whales. And it's really about a change in people's consciousness and about how they think about it. And if enough people think this is the right thing to do, it'll get done multiple times. Well, and I think, I mean, and again, we we talked about Blackfish, but I, I, I remember thinking how amazing that literally one documentary could put a hole and in, really into an in- industry. And it was almost like when I was little, 
or, you know, even up to 15 years ago, it was like, oh, cool. You're going to go to like a place like that. I won't even right. say their names. Right. right. Um, and now it would be like, ew, you're going to go there. We talk about it as the blackfish effect. Yeah, it's crazy. And that movie and seen so frequently by so many mm. has had a huge, huge impact. Yeah. We did a little, a little film, Whales Without Walls, five yeah. minutes. It's now won four awards at, at uh, film festivals around the world. It was best documentary at Toronto Film Festival last week. Just a little film about what we're doing. Yeah. Why? Because it speaks so nicely and so beautifully to what people want. And so I think if people hear stories like this, and we're just one, we're, we're doing it. Lots of people are doing so many wonderful things. You hear the story, you want to be a part of it. Where can people see Whales Without Walls? Eat yes, on easily? our website okay. at whalesanctuary.org.org. Mm -hmm. uh, you can see Whales Without Walls on the homepage. And certainly all of the research that I, we spoke about with Lori's research on big brains, big, beautiful brains of the whales, that's there. Lots mm -hmm. of good stories about this. Even my TED Talk still up there from, from okay. this. And it's a place to connect with what we're doing. Uh, but we're doing webinars where we can. We're learning. Even I'm learning about social media. It's a struggle, but I'm learning. Every step of the way, I'm dragging my foot behind me, but I'm doing my best. And uh, we're trying to reach out to people in every way we can and uh, get back to Nova Scotia. But really, with the team we have, this is happening, and it's it's wonderful to be part of. Are there any VR experiences uh, that we know of out there? With whales or, or killer whales? There, there is the uh, Center for Whale Research in the Pacific Northwest. Mm -hmm. Ken Balcom has been researching orca for as long as almost anybody and mm -hmm. has done a tremendous job. In their visitor center, they do have some VR experiences that mm -hmm. are wonderful. I don't think they're online yet. Got it. With our Whale Sanctuary Project, there will be an educational center. Yeah. either adjacent to where the whales are or nearby, mm -hmm. where we will have underwater cameras from beaming from the whale sanctuary, above water cameras. So stop and think about it. I mean, with today's technology, VR or yeah. camera, rather than being at a marine park in an amphitheater, picture a 3D screen yeah. beaming from a sanctuary what's happening in nature, a critter cam. Yeah. whether it's in the wild or whether it's in a sanctuary, so that we can give children and children of all ages the experience of whales in nature rather than having them perform for entertainment. Right. So that's the future of how that changes. And that's what we'll be able to do with an educational center on site, but reaching every school everywhere. Well, I'm, I'm really inspired uh, not only by this, but by the approach, because I think that that approach of love and hopefulness and also partnering up, you're not saying, hey, I want to be combative with the park, so I want to figure out a way to work together. Um, I think we need to carry that with all the things that we need to correct. We um, so I have to tell you one quick story. I, when I was a teenager, I, I so I grew up in, Saint, in the Virgin Islands mm -hmm. mostly, and I spent a lot of time in Virgin Gorda. Okay. Yeah, and there was a Cousteau group there. Yes, a gentleman. I don't have any. I don't know if you know who this is. Named Bert Kilbride. I know Bert. Okay, so <laughs> I'm going to tell you a really funny story, and I actually didn't think of it until 
about an hour ago, and it dawned on me. When I was a kid, I, like all kids, I was, you know, I went out. But to go out in Virgin Gordy, you had, uh, I drove in a car. I had a male cousin who drove in the Sound, and he went. We were by um, the Bitter End. Not we sure. were on that side, yeah. and we yeah. go around to go by the marina. Because if right. you were going to go out, I was probably like 14 or 15. And my cousin went with these two guys who worked for the Cousteau Society on a boat. And I went with a bunch of girls in a car. It's very hard to get around in Virgin Gordon in a car, especially when you're on that side. Right. So I caught a ride. And then this girl was like, oh, I'll go back in the boat with these two boys from the, the Cousteau Society. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, you should probably not go alone with them. <laughs> so I told my male cousin, Brian, Joseph, I'm riding you out, Waylon, wait for me at the dock before you go home because I'm going to go with these people around the sound. And you're out in the middle. Do I want to hear this story? Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. So our boat, uh, the motor died out. Right. And you're in the kind of in the middle. There's an island called Great Dog and That's Little right. Dog. Yeah. All right. So we're over there drifting. Oars, no oar locks, like seriously. So we kind of ma- manually get ourselves to a Great Dog, which is across yeah. from Virgin Gorda on the right. point. Yeah. And we tucked in on this little cove. And so... The cove was on the, uh, you know, more on the west side, so away to the open ocean. Mm-hmm. And um, we had to sleep in the water because the mosquitoes were so bad, they'd be in your hair. So I just slept in, you know, like stood in the chest tight water. But I thought to myself, you know what? It's going to be okay. I know it's dark. It was like, by the time we got there, it was probably two in the morning. But my cousin is going to be waiting. And when I, we don't show up, he's going to say, hey, we should go figure out where they are. Long story short, he got tired of waiting for me on the dock. Our house is two stories. I was with my grandparents and aunts and uncles, and nobody actually realized that we weren't around until noon the next day. And no offense to the two boys from the Cousteau Society, but they were completely clueless. And the girl I was with, she was completely sunburned because you're hyperexposed. And I had a jean skirt on, so I took it off so I could swim. Right. And I went to the outside point to try to see if there was any boats or anything. And I was like, listen, if we're going to be here too long, I'm ready to swim. Because yeah. Virgin Gorda wasn't that far. It was maybe a mile or something. Right. Lo and behold, it's like 5 o'clock, Burt Kilbride, right. who's a salty bugger. He I mean, at the time, guy. he was 75 years old, at least, when he rescued us. Right. He comes with his boat from the Cousteau Society and says, you know, I thought about it. I thought about the currents and I figured maybe this was a location you could be. And he came and rescued yeah. us. Wow. Yeah. yeah. A wonderful guy. Unbelievable. He was really, is he, I mean, I can't imagine he's still alive. I don't think so. I don't but think But anyway, so. I forgot that I had that story and yeah. I was like, when you're talking about it, I was like, I wonder if he yeah. knew Bert. Oh, but yeah. anyway, Bert Everyone knows Bert. Everybody and, and, knows And when Bert. we swam out and he says to the guys, boy, when you fuck up, you guys really fuck up, you know, like this. <laughs> Because there was like, they were looking for us, right? Right. And my idiot cousin, Brian Whalen, because I had it like, you get taught, like have some point of safety right. in place, last point of contact. Yeah. But anyway, so the Cousteau Society has not only done a lot of work, but they also rescued me when I was about 15. Well, Bert rescued you. Bert did. <laughs> the guys like, behalf, had nothing to do with on it. On behalf, <laughs> though, of them. So, okay. So everyone listening, um, Charles, I really appreciate your approach. We Thank can you. all learn from that. Um, the stillness and the quietness is louder and more impactful than just yelling and being combative. So thank you for that lesson and that reminder. And for everyone else listening, please go to the whalesanctuary.org. .org, yeah. And um, is there any other place we want to direct them? 
I think that's the that's the main place. Go there, and from okay. there, they can reach out to everywhere. Okay, good. And we're going to be watching. I'm 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 very interested, and and um, and uh, I just thank you. Thanks well, thank, for coming to my house. Well, thank you for having me, and uh, it's it's a pleasure to meet you. I mean, I think you exude that same kind of stillness and uh, sensitivity to the environment, and certainly it's clear in your home. Yeah. So I'm very grateful to be well, here. Thank you. I'm learning on the stillness. I'm learning, Charles. Trying to grow up. As we are a lot. <laughs> we all have a lot to go. <laughs> Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening. And if you'd like, rate, subscribe, and leave us a review. All of my music was graciously done by Frank Zumo and Tom Thacker. If you want to see some of the behind-the-scenes action, just follow me at Gabby Reese. And remember, don't miss new episodes every Monday. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.